That's Triple J uh, and the Science Hour with Dr. Carl and Carla this morning. How are you going, Carl? I'm extra good today. Um, it's lovely weather. We're in Australia. Nobody's bombing us. What's not to like? Exactly. All right. Shall we get right into the Science yes, Hour? Indeedy. Okay, Charlotte from Brizzy has got our first question for the week. Hey, Dr. Charlotte. Hi, Dr. Carl. Hi, Dr. Charlotte. How are you? I'm ever so peachy keen. How are you today? I'm good. What's ah. your question? Um, why do we always see half of rainbows and not the full, like, circle? Ah, you can actually see the full circle of a rainbow, but under very special circumstances. Yes. One is if you had a very tall, skinny pin about three kilometres high. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Number <laughs> two, if you have a very tall, skinny mountain yeah. and you're on the top and then the sun is behind you, rain clouds in front of you, yeah. you won't have the horizon blocking off half the rainbow yeah. because the horizon will be lower. Okay. So the horizon is what blocks off the circle. Mm. If you can get high enough, you get the full circle. Uh, but where you can see a full circle is when you're flying in an aeroplane and you're in a window seat yeah. on the side away from the sunlight. Okay. And you're above the clouds. It's got to be cloudy. Yeah. So the sun is on the other side of the plane. You're in shadow and you look down. And if you're lucky, you can see the shadow of your aeroplane on the cloud and a complete circular rainbow around it. So, and you have that wonderful thing of climbing out through the stormy weather and then suddenly you pop out into the sunlight and, oh my heavens, I'm in a different world and you can see the shadow of the plane yeah. and you keep on climbing up and then at some stage when the shadow gets to be maybe the size of your thumbnail at arm's length, if you yeah. hold it out, then you'll see this complete circular rainbow around the plane thanks to the water droplets in the cloud below you. Oh, wow. And it's free, apart from the plane flight. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. What a nice way to spend your school holidays, hanging out with Dr. Carl. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's head now to Kyle in Toowoomba. What's your question? Hey, guys, how's it going? Dr. Carl, very well, thank you. Good to hear, good to hear. I've got a question regarding um, air travel and um, the time it takes to get from one side of the world to the other side of the world. So yep. if you're flying from one side to the other, is there any truth behind the plane or the, the pilot flying closer towards either pole in order to speed up the travel time? Um, a little bit. So measured across the equator, the Earth has mm -hmm. a certain diameter. And if you measure across the poles, it's about 40 kilometres less. So okay. you've got a microscopically smaller distance. Um, okay. Secondly, the main factor involved is the winds. So you have what are called Hadley cells, H-A-D-L-E-Y cells, and there's three bands of wind on each side of the equator, there's the North Hadley cells and the South Hadley cells, and there's three bands of wind. Um, and so if you're flying, say, Sydney to Perth or back, the longest I've ever had was six hours going Sydney to Perth, and then coming back, I had three hours and 35. So okay. it's, it's trying to pick up the winds. It's the major thing that it will yeah. help you. And, of course, the so, third thing is that you just ignore the straight, flat map. You have to go by the globe and you have mm -hmm. to do a thing called the Great Circle. And so I had this really weird experience where to come from uh, Ecuador, from the uh, Galapagos Islands, which is on the equator, to Sydney, which yeah. is 30 degrees from the equator, the shortest way was via the Antarctic. Mm. 
Okay, so well, it so, is, because this has been a long-running debate yeah. between me and a mate. So if, uh, specifically, I was thinking from one opposite side to the other opposite, opposite side, if it would make any difference, you know, sort of going either a little bit up north because it's closer to the axis where it spins a bit faster, or it seemingly does, and then dropping back down um, on the other side oh. to sort of... Okay, you don't pick up any speed from the spin of the Earth because you're trapped in, I'm going to use a fancy phrase, it's the inertial frame of reference. It's not like, I think about it, you're on an aeroplane and you're in the aisle and you jump into the air and, mate, you land exactly where you took off from. You don't end up flying down the aisle at 900 kilometres per hour and end up splattered in a thin layer of chunky red saucer on the back end of the aeroplane. No, so no. you're not going to pick up any speed that way. The winds and the great circle are the main thing, mainly the okay. winds or what you're looking for to economise. But over the poles, the 40-kilometre difference is nothing. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thanks for your sure. question, Carl. And one three hundred o triple five three six is the number to call with your questions. Let's head now to Hobart. And, Sam, you've got a good one for Dr. Carl. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, doctors? Very well, thank you. Um, about four years ago, my stepson, who was about six years old, uh, he was ill with a bit of a, a fever. Um, he woke up kind of lashing out and he was like saying, get it off me, get it off me. Um, and I said, oh, what's wrong, mate? He says, oh, I don't like where I am. And he said, I'm in mummy's tummy. Get the water out of my mouth. So my question is, can you retain uh, memories from the womb? Ah, is he, how old was he, six years old? Six years old. Okay. Um, firstly, there's a phenomenon called childhood amnesia. Where yeah. basically the number of memories you've got from when you were six years and under is, is zilch. I feel like that's me. Yeah, I've got, got hardly anything. Right, you've got hardly anything. It varies a little bit. I've written a story about this. Go looking for Dr. Car- Go to Google and look up Dr. Carl, ABC and childhood amnesia. And it explains lots of stuff about it. So firstly, you've got virtually no memories from then. Secondly, there's zero proof zero proof that we have memories from the uterus. Nobody has got any memory, nobody's got any proof of that. Thirdly, if you have a child aged six months to six years and they have a high fever, they can have what's called a febrile convulsion, mm-hmm. which uh, I've had that in my kids and it's really scary. Um, and what you do is you just bring the temperature down and then keep an eye on them and uh, make sure you've got medical involvement there. So almost yeah. certainly your child was having a mild febrile convulsion and then they come through out the other side and there's no increased risk of neurological problems, epilepsy, nothing. you just got to make sure that you get through that six months to six-year stage. So memory of being in the uterus, almost certainly not. I'm sorry. Okay. No worries. Sorry. Thanks, Sam. Thank okay. you. All right. I reckon we can squeeze in another one. Uh, Paige from Redcliffe. Hey. Dr. Paige. Hey, welcome. how are you? Good. What's your question? Um, I would like to know, the sun set at normal time of about 6pm the other night, but the moon didn't actually start rising until about 2 o'clock in the morning, yeah. quarter to 2 in the morning. Why does that happen? Ah, okay, so what happens is that the moon goes around the earth in a month, a month, about 28 days, and yep. there's 24 hours in a day... So call it roughly the same. So what it means is that because the moon is orbiting the earth, that the moonrise is roughly one hour later every day. 
roughly, if you consider oh. 24 to be the same. So then go and either look it up on an app or even better, go and look at it in reality and take out a warm cocoa to keep you warm through the night and just watch the moon rising above the horizon and you think, oh, my God, it actually does rise. In our society yeah. today, with our incredible technological advancements and knowledge, the number of people who know how long it takes the moon to go around the earth is about one-third. We've lost that yeah. knowledge. Yeah, we don't need it. So, so because it didn't rise until like 2 o'clock Tuesday morning, does that mean it won't rise until about 4 o'clock Thursday morning? Ah, and then 5 o'clock on Friday, Friday so you morning. can just catch it. Um, yes, mm. if, if you've got a view to the east, yes. So yeah. it's roughly one hour later if you consider 24 to be the same as 28, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll head right now to Coburg. Steph, you've got a question for Dr. Carl. Yeah, hi, doctors. Dr. Steph. Hi. I have a friend who cooks his poached eggs in a plastic freezer bag or cling wrap, and I would think that the plastic chemicals are seeping through into the eggs um, because of the plastic being in boiling water. Am I right to be worried, or is there actually nothing happening? Um, You've raised a really good question, and in this case, you're probably okay. So if they're plastic freezer bags and they are food-rated as opposed to other sorts of rating, they're almost certainly safe with regard to food if they've been certified in a wealthy country like Australia and if they've been properly manufactured and tested. So you do remember a few years ago there was problems with baby food containing chemicals like melamine and stuff like that. So providing you've got the full chain of governance, you should be all right, number one. Number two, plastic freezer bags are normally really cheap with regard to food and rather than being high-grade plastic, uh, they're a lower-grade plastic and think of it less than an impermeable membrane like glass, but more like strands of barbed wire with holes. And so if you leave them out, sometimes you can get liquidy, meaty substancy coming through, literally through the plastic, number two. Number three, um, with regard to plastics being better or worse than glass, in some cases they're better. So when they were doing research in the early days, by that early days I mean 15 years ago, on farts and on bad breath, they found that the fart and the bad breath chemicals would eat into the glass. Whoa. And they had to use a special super high grade of passivated plastic, which was better than glass. So it's not automatic that plastic is crappy and glass is perfect, but in most cases that's the way. And in this case, you're almost certainly safe. All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Steph. Thanks, Steph. We are taking your science questions this morning, uh, so give us a call. Now, uh, Daniel from Thornbury, what's your question? G'day, doctors. How are you going? Daniel. Very well, Dr. Daniel. Um, I've got a question on planetary gravity working on smaller scales. So theoretically, if you were to place um, a bowling ball or really heavy object in a vacuum of space, um, could you get very small objects to create a stable orbit around it like marbles as planets or even sand to create rings like Saturn? Uh, Yes, but you'd have to go a lot smaller. Um, The numbers are against you because gravity out of the four forces is the weakest force. Gravity right. sucks. So I read this in the um, last word sections of the New Scientist only six months ago. Great magazine. And if you've got a human with a human's mass, which is bigger than a bowling ball in orbit, what you can have orbiting that human is not a grain of sand. You don't have enough gravity, but a hydrogen atom orbiting right. at about one metre and taking about 30, 40 seconds, about a minute to orbit. So, yes, they did the numbers and you can have something orbiting a human, but it has to be really, really tiny like a hydrogen atom. 
Right. Okay. So I was going too big with the um with the satellites, like a marble is. Oh like yeah. You, you're yeah. several orders of magnitude out. Don't worry about it. That's a good start to astronomy. <laughs> Easy. All right. Thanks for your help. Thank you. Thanks for the yeah. question, Daniel and Jack from Port Ferry. How are you doing, Doctor Jack? G'day. Um, I'm just wondering what's the maximum distance uh, a string and cut telephone would work, and how what the string and cuts are made from might change that. Okay. So we're talking about an experiment in the kids' books of about. 20, 30 years ago, which keeps on popping up, where you get two tins, like a tomato tin or a baked bean tin, wash them out cleanly, and you take the lid off. So they're empty. So it's got this cylinder and a base, and you've got two of them. And you drill or you punch with a nail a little tiny hole, and then you run a string through the hole and tie a knot, and then a string through the other one and tie a knot, and you've got two people maybe two metres apart, and they're joined together by this string. And so you talk into the tin, and your voice vibrates the base of the tin. It gives that energy to the string. If you keep the string nice and tight, it goes down the string to the other end, and then it vibrates the base, and you put your ear, and you can hear the voice. And that's why... I'm going to let you all in a secret now. Now, Carla, I, I know I shouldn't really let on this secret, but in Tell the me. okay, but in, but in the professional radio trade like you and me, uh, we don't call headphones headphones. We call them cans, cans. <laughs> exactly for that reason. So, ah. Ah, so that's why we call them cans. Because I thought going, it was just a colloquialism. Well, that, that's where it came from, right. from the tomato cans. Yeah. So the question is, what distance can you go for? Well, what's going to stop the uh, information from going on forever will be friction in the string. So the energy is coming down the string. Now, think about the string as being made of twisted fibres that are twisted into little bundles and they're smaller bundles and smaller bundles. Maybe you go down two or three levels. And um, if you had a really stiff string with low friction, it would then shake and then rub against the other strands and transmit the information a long way. So if you had something made of carbon fibre, I reckon you could get kilometres out of it. But if you've just got normal cotton, mm. I, I reckon friction would slow you down, it would, make, would dissipate the energy maybe after, I don't know, 100 metres, 200 metres. Can somebody do the experiment? And if they do, I will send them a, a special Dr. Carl present um, and ring into us next week. And I'm sure, Carly, you can find some crappy old CDs on your desk. Yeah, we'll gather okay, something so up. If somebody can yeah, do we... the experiment for the maximum distance, we will, we'll, you'll get a Triple J fun pack. Yeah, we're going to try and do it over a couple of paddocks, I think, so see how we go. Ooh. Okay, and ring in next week with the answer. If you can't get in, ring me directly at the University of Sydney. But try on the radio. All right, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Jack. And Bill from Ararat has got a big question, a big spicy one. Ah. Dr. Good morning, Bill. doctors. Dr. Um, Bill. I'm asking a question on behalf of my six-year-old son, Dr. Lionel. He'd like to know how, why adding carrots tempers the heat of a hot, spicy curry. Uh, don't know. And if there are any chefs out there and people with access to Google Scholar, give us the answer. So, number one, the heat of a curry is due to a chemical called capsaicin, C-A-P-S-A-I-C-I-N. And um, the reason that you feel heat in a curry is because of an amazing coincidence. On your tongue, there are receptors for heat, and you give them some heat, like a hot cup of tea, and they go fire, fire, fire. They burn, they, they send an electrical signal to your brain. They also, if they're touched with this chemical called capsaicin, will also fire. 
and send a signal to your brain saying there's heat. Now, uh, you measure the heat of a curry on something called the Scoville scale, S-C-O-V-I-L-L-E scale, and pure capsaicin is up around 15 million, um, and people get up to tens of thousands or even a million with a really hot curry. And my son and I had a competition at some stage when we were stupid to see who could eat the hottest curry. And we pulled out when both of us had symmetrical, because we were related to each other, we had symmetrical, complete loss of sensation on on our faces going from the ears down to the corner of the mouth and down to the jaw, and we were sweaty. And at that stage, we sort of said, well, that's probably as far as we need to go. So I'm guessing that there's something in carrots that preferentially absorbs this chemical but that's pure speculation so that was my speculation as well i'm not sure whether the cap- carrots take up the capsaicin or whether there's a actual um like take it up in the the, the fiber of the plant yeah. or if it's uh chemical cancelling out or maybe it's yeah. hitting the taste bud it's fitting that same little lock and key mechanism but yeah i thought you might have be able to shed more light on it for us but, but you've, you're off to a good start there bill because firstly it's got to take up the chemical and secondly the chemical's still there so your idea is right you've then got to neutralize it in some way make it too big to go into the receptors on your tongue okay so if somebody can look up the answer for us on google yes. scholar and post it on dr carl the twitter feed d-o-c-t-o-r-k-r-l or even ring in on the magic number one three hundred oh triple five three six. it is dr carl can i ask you a quick spicy little yeah, question too job. on tuesday night i was chopping up little chilies little mm. bird's eye babies and like the day after even this morning it's still like on my fingers whenever i go to rub my eyes there's still oh, a hint no. of it and um i'm just wondering what what, because soap isn't cutting it, so mm. what can neutralise that chilli acid, I guess? Um, fat. Fat, yeah, or alcohol. Yeah. So, so with regard to fat. I was thinking bicarb soda or something like that. But. Bicarb soda may work, but uh, capsaicin is soluble in fat, which is why you tend to have yoghurt with mm-hmm. its fat to moderate a hot chilli. So just rub your fingers in olive oil. Mm. And then you sort or of, ice cream. I, ice cream. Oh, that's ice cream. a good but don't um, Maybe ice cream toothpaste could work as well. Oh, well, that's, that's mm. abrasive. Yeah, so, okay. so, but I'd, I'd go for alcohol and fat and um, you know, cooking oil and then ice cream and yoghurt. Yeah, they're being on fire. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank <laughs> you. All right. Thank thanks you, for Bill. your question. And um, from chilies and curries to sweating, Robert, you've got a great question. Hi. Um, Hello, um, Dr. Carla and Dr. Carl. Um, I was just wondering, um, does a person's propensity for sweating or perspiration change over that person's lifetime, given similar le- um, levels of activity? Yes, um, there's a range of natural levels of sweating from just hardly any at all, which is unfortunate, to the average amount, which is good, to hyperhidrosis, hyper, too much, hydrosis, H-Y-D-R-O-S-I-S, meaning water and osis, the state of, where in an extreme case, they cannot work with paper because just the picking up of the paper will leave their sweaty fingerprints on it. And uh, you can change it during your life. So various things happen to increase it and decrease it, but also training. And so athletes will, to moderate their sweating impulse, go and train in desert areas or in really hot, sweaty areas so your body will adjust. It can be adjusted, but if you've got hyperhidrosis, you can then get it hit with Botox, which on one hand, the people who have had their um, the Botox into their sweat glands say it's the most painful thing they ever experienced in their whole life. Yeah. And secondly, they were glad they had it done. I, I, I'm scared of pain. I wouldn't do it. 
Wow, thank you, Dr. Carl. Appreciate yeah. that. Rachel from Cessnock, you've got a fantastic one. Hello, doctors. I'm wondering what's going to happen to Ben and Liam when they eat their cheeseburger? Tell me more. This is a cheeseburger? What is it? Just a cheeseburger they bought it's, this morning? So it's the 11-year-old cheeseburger. It's an 11-year-old cheeseburger. Okay, a cheeseburger has in it bread, which is relatively benign. Cheese, which has a hard fibrous, well, hard structure and it's difficult to invade, and meat. That's mm. where I'd I be should, scared. Meat. I should say, Dr. Carl, yeah. it's from a, uh, a, a burger chain that has lots of preservatives in their food. Mm. The preservatives are not the problem. In fact, that's probably the reason why it's still edible. But you're worried about the bacteria. Now, you might have heard of Botox, and Botox came from a bacterium uh, called botulinum. And what happened, I think it was in 1647 or something like that in Germany, 13 German people sat down to a meal of sausage, which is botulus in Latin, and half of them died. Six died, seven survived. And that was how we discovered how nasty the food poisoning is from botulinum. And mm. we then found out how it worked, that it actually paralysed nerves. And so you might have these stars on TV who can do everything except wrinkle their forehead. And so um, I'm really worried about an bacteria invading the meat. I would not do it. You, the chances are they'll probably get away with it. Like 99 times out of 100, they'll get away with it. And one time out of 100, they'll get sick. And maybe once out of every 10,000, they'll die. But the odds are vastly right. in their favour. They, they, they'll probably get away with it. All right. But they shouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I've, I've seen, I've seen <laughs> what, people die. How much from, money would you do it for, though? Uh, or not even? No. Um, only if I was really poor and I was a going to die in the next 10 years, would I then do it to leave something for the family? Ooh, that risky. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Look, definitely too risky. So their $60 is not going to cut it? Um, no way for 60 But oh, it's something gets tricky here. I was reading a paper about retirees in America, and it turns out that uh, one quarter of all people in America who retire over a 20-year period suffer from what's called sudden wealth shock where they lose an average of 75% of their wealth or a median of 95% of their wealth and then suddenly their uh, health, their death rate uh, doubles um, up to as high as people who have no assets. And one-fifth of all people in America who retire go into retirement with assets of $400. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's if you add up every single thing they've got, the worth of everything they've got is $400. So $60 is not going to cut it as a risk of dying. All right. <laughs> Fantastic question. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Dr. Rachel. All right. And we'll head to Brisbane. Uh, Louise, you've got a question for Dr. Carl. Dr. Yeah, Louise, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, doctors. Um, I want to know about the length of a day, the difference between a solstice and an equinox. In um, an equinox, you have equal sunrise-sunset time. Mm. And then something happens with the earth tilting and the sunrise happens later, but the sunset happens later too. Yeah. So um, at, for example, the equator, 
you've got 12 hours of sun and 12 hours of night every day. But yeah. if you're at, say, Sydney, you've got nine and a half hours to 13 and a half hours. That's the variation. But yeah. at the equinox, and there's, the equinox happens at a brief instant, so you've got to do this with a baseball that's tilted and you're walking around a light bulb and then you pretend that the baseball is the earth and that the uh, light bulb is the sun. And I then think it's you can like suddenly, an orange and a lemon. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll work. And then you can sort of work it out. But the equinox doesn't happen for a day. It's normally March 20 and, yeah. s- and September 20. But it, uh, it's not that it happens for a day. There's one brief instant in that day, maybe 30 seconds, where the Terminator... And that is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but rather the line, which is the difference between day and night as an astronomical term, where the Terminator simultaneously passes through the North Pole and the South Pole. And that happens just for a brief instant. And then for the rest of the next six months, it's a little bit one way. Then it happens again six months and then it's a bit the other way. So the solstice is when you've got the maximum. And so in my particular case, I decided I would have a scientific marriage. And so my wife and I got married on the uh, longest day of the year. And we got married in the Arctic Circle uh, on the 20th of June. And I told my daughter and darling... Uh, she was eight years old, the sun will stay in the sky all day and even at midnight the sun will be up because, darling, in the same way that the sun will not set inside the Arctic Circle, comma, then the love will not set on our marriage. And I got all choked up and my daughter said, you're crazy, the sun can't stay up at midnight, you're crazy, daddy, you're crazy. And (laughs) she stayed up and she said, it's not making sense. It's not making sense, and it doesn't. But you've just got to go. you got to do the experiment with the baseball or the apple or the orange around the light bulb, and then you can see how you can end up with 100% daylight, 100% nighttime, and the equinox. Thanks so much, Louise. Thank okay, you, Dr. Thanks. Louise. All right. Uh, you are hanging out with Dr. Carl. We're talking science, so 1300-055-36 if you've got a question. And, Josh, we are also hanging out with you in Manly, Brisbane. Hello. Dr. Josh, we welcome. Going? Hello. Hello. What's your question? All right, I've got a bit of a weird one. Um, when I watch, like, let's say, The Voice or X Factor or any of those sort of singing shows, when someone comes out and they have an accent, let's say Irish, uh, Chinese, or an accent some of that kind, uh, when they sing, they don't have that accent. But when they go back to talking, they can't speak in an English accent. They mm. talk back in their normal accent. Uh, that's a complicated story. Yeah. I'm, I've been working on that for a while. I don't have a full answer. Part of the answer is the cultural imperialism. So okay. in the same way that mathematics is a different language, it's yep. just a, a language and people who do mathematics are not just really smart. It's just that they've got a different, they've got a propensity for that different language. So to singing is activating in a slightly different part of the brain and it comes through as a kind of a mini baby language. That's part of the answer. The other part of the answer I do not have, I have failed you, and if somebody could go searching through Google Scholar, maybe there's a better answer now. I looked three months ago, I couldn't find anything, and I didn't go very hard either. So I failed you, Dr. Josh, I failed you. I've been living with this question for like six months, Dr. Carl. I thought you would have been the man. Oh, and, and you know the same thing like when uh, Aussies, yep. Aussie singers and rappers will also rap with that American accent. American accent, yeah. Yes. But yet they talk back with an Aussie accent. Cultural imperialism is part of the answer, but only part. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. All good. The brain's an amazing thing, eh? <laughs> Thanks, Josh. All right, Haley from uh, Wagga Wagga. Dr. Haley, He's welcome. on the line with us too. Hello, doctors. Um, I have a two-part question. First part of the question is, why do we randomly get itchy? 
And second part of the question is, why is it when we itch that spot that another part of our body becomes itchy and it's just sort of like a vicious cycle? Okay, um, number one, we discovered the nerves for itching only in the last 15 years and we're still learning about itching. Number two, philosophically think about itch and pain being on the opposite ends of a seesaw. So if the itch goes up, the pain goes down and vice versa. So if you've got an itch in an area, you can relieve it by giving some pain, by scratching it with your sharp fingernail. Of course, you cause damage to your skin, don't do it, but nevertheless. And you've got that sort of cliche of the junkie full of opiates and not feeling any pain, Mm. but itching like crazy. Number three, we understand some of the causes of itching. And so if you're lucky... You might have an itch due to rolling around in freshly mowed grass. You take a histamine, an antihistamine, and because the itch was caused by histamine being released in your body, the itch goes away. But there are other forms of itch that are not relieved by antihistamines because they're not caused by histamines and we don't know what they're caused by. And an extreme case was that this is where it gets gory, where a woman scratched her way through her scalp and even through the bone of her skull... Until she, so there was nothing there to register the itch, but her brain was telling her. And, and, and in some cases of liver disease, people have itch that we cannot solve. So we still have not got all the answers on itch. If you want to get a good research project going that will got, got lots of legs and great discoveries to be made, get into itching. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Hayley. And Scott from Yamba, you've got a question. Hi, doctors. Dr. Scott, welcome. How's it going? Good. You got a question for us? Uh, I've got an evolution question. Yep. Just wondering um, if we've evolved from monkeys and just wondering why monkeys are still around. Did you come from your parents? Pretty sure. Why are your parents still around? Oh. Okay, part two. We didn't evolve from monkeys, but rather seven million years ago, we split off from the chimpanzees. So they were our last connection to the apoid family and then we just kept on evolving. There were a whole bunch of lines of us. Most of us died out and the only one left turned into Homo heidelbergensis 600,000 years ago and then evolved into Homo sapiens about 200,000 years ago. So we didn't evolve from monkeys but we split off from the common line and our last connection was not the monkeys but in fact the chimpanzees. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Thanks for your Thank question. You. All right, let's head to Trav. You've got a question? Yeah. Yeah, I certainly do. My question's in regards to solar panels. Yep. So I've always wondered how much energy it takes to produce a solar panel and how long it'll take you to recuperate it. Yep, the energy payback time depends on the local sun-cloud ratio in your area and the best in the world is sydney perth and the energy payback time for the solar panel and the stainless steel or aluminium mounting plus the mounting brackets needed to hold on your roof plus the inverter the energy payback time ranges from 18 months to 40 months and the worst place in the world is Brussels purely because of the cloud cover. So oh, the okay. Arctic and the Antarctic actually do fairly well because at certain times you get 24 hours of sunlight and you just have the solar panels vertical. And that's what I found really weird when I went up to uh, Svalbard in the Arctic Circle. The solar panels were not pointing to the sky. 
Yeah. They were pointing to the horizon. Ah, okay. Well, that's yeah. actually much better than I anticipated. Yeah, 18 months to 40 months. So you're way ahead. And with wind turbines, it's of the order of six months. So you're way, way ahead with renewables. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Thanks, Trav. And let's head to Borkham Hills. Josh, what's your question? Dr. Josh, welcome. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering if sunscreen, uh, sorry, getting sunburn is accumulative or not. So if I spend 20 minutes in the sun twice, is that the same as 40 minutes in one go? Uh, yes, it would be. Uh, almost. There's a little bit of a wind-up because your skin is a bit colder, but by the time it warms up and then begins to dry out, yes. So basically in Australia, uh, there's only a very small number of people who have the right skin colour, which is pretty dark black, but even the Indigenous inhabitants can, under certain circumstances, get uh, sunburnt, get skin cancers, but they've got more sense to keep out of the sun if they can. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Thanks Josh. For that. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> See ya. All right. And Sam from Wollongong, you've got a question for Dr. Carl. Yeah, hi, doctors. I'll try and make it quick. I've always been a sleep talker and a sleep walker, but it's increased as I've gotten older. And now, particularly, I've got a newborn son. I freak out in the middle of the night thinking that I've dropped or we're crushing our son in the bed for some reason. Ah. Mm. Okay. Um... And it gets worse when I drink as well, like if I've had a few beers. Uh, okay. So in general, the older you get, the um, sleepwalking drops. But sensible precautions are, for example, never sleeping for a sleepwalker in the top bunk. Put a bell on the door to warn them you know, so that if you open the door, the bell goes off. Install gates at the top of the stairs. You're better off waking them up or taking them gently by the elbow and leading them back to the bed. If you do wake up a sleepwalker, you don't kill them by the sudden shock or by a heart attack. It's surprisingly common in our society and bad things do sometimes happen when people go sleepwalking. So depending on the definition, about 15% of all children sleepwalk. About one quarter to one third of kids between five and 12 will do it at least once. One yep. to six six percent will sleepwalk a lot, but as your m- m- nervous system matures, it drops down to about two percent in adults. So in your case, I'd definitely cut back on the alcohol just so you don't uh, do any more sleepwalking unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. It's funny I've actually fallen out of the top bunk sleepwalking. Ooh, oh, see, top bunk, mate, top bunk. Yeah, it's a killer. Right. Gra- gravity is the cause of most uh, damage to humans. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Sam and Pauline from Melbourne. What's your question? Um, with all of the space junk flying around the Earth, how, mm. does any of it um, damage the International Space Station? Does it, cra- or does it crash in there? Uh, yeah. Micro amounts do run in, stuff they can't pick up. There's millions of pieces of stuff bigger than the head of a pin. On 16 occasions, the International Space Station which has been flying continuously since the 2nd of November in the year 2000. So anybody who's on holidays, if you were born after that date, for every second you've been alive, we've had humans in outer space. On 16 occasions, the International Space Station has had to fire its rockets and manoeuvre out of the way to avoid running into something big enough to do damage, say something the size of a pen. Mm. And on four occasions, they didn't have enough warning and they had to, all the astronauts put on their spacesuits, go into the re-entry capsule and sit there ready to abandon the space station on four occasions. So if something did hit the space station, they'd immediately cut loose fire the rockets and just abandon it. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Pauline. I reckon we Thanks. can squeeze in one last question. Alex from Kedron. Dr. Alex, welcome. Hi, Dr. Carl. How are you going? Um, just a quick question for you guys. So my dad decided after 33 years he'd go and get his teeth cleaned because he hadn't actually brushed them for 33 years. Whoa! He thought, he thought he'd chipped a tooth, but actually he'd chipped some plaque off. Anyway, short, long story short, he went to the dentist, got it all removed, and there was nothing wrong with his teeth. I was just wondering how that would have happened after 33 years of doing nothing. Um, plaque is not just sort of like a medium-hard calcified stuff. It is a home for bacteria. And the important thing about your teeth is not just those 32 little white things in your mouth, but how they're nourished and held there. And that involves the gum and also the ligaments. And gum disease is the killer. So when you're brushing your teeth, yeah, you brush your teeth to get the rocks off, but you're really brushing the gum line. I realise I've been brushing my teeth wrongly and I got a lesson from the dentist in how to do it. You brush the gum line and the gum retreats with age. You've heard the phrase long in the tooth. The teeth Mm -hmm. don't get longer, the gum shrinks away. On one occasion, in my case, I had to have 10 of my gum root sockets opened up with surgery. It's called marsupialization because when I was a hippie, I didn't brush my teeth for many years. Okay, I didn't brush my teeth for many years and I'm sorry I didn't do it. And you don't have to brush your teeth. But let me just say this. Your dad was incredibly lucky because he had friendly bacteria and most people don't and he didn't have damage to his gum line. He was lucky, lucky, lucky. And if you're lucky, you'll have the same genetics and the same bacteria. In general... I don't think I did. Yeah, yeah, well, I have to, unfortunately. I didn't get those genetics. So thank you so much for your... uh, Thank you. Thanks so much, Alex. Well, that about brings us to the end of the Science Hour. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful questions. Thanks for hanging out, Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl, it's been so much fun. I remember the song that we should have as our last song going out sometime in the future, this song called Paul and Paula. Well, Carl and Carla, we'll do it another time. Oh, we've got to do it sometime. (laughs) 